0: Welcome back to our summer series from the University of Notre Dame's International Security Center. I'm Beth Grisoli and with me today is Dan Lindley, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame and Associate Director of Notre Dame's International Security Program. His current research examines the extent to which miscalculation and misperception have come to dominate states' decisions for war and whether the development of new weapons helps lead states into war. So, Dan, this research is fascinating, and, and you're in the thick of it right now. Um, tell the rest of us a little bit how you even approach something like this. How do you examine it? What, what different areas are you looking at? What can you compare, et cetera?
1: Well, Beth, uh, great questions there, and there are two, two separate questions, one about misperception miscalculation. To study that, I actually look at a large n. how many wars there have been since the Napoleonic Wars, so since 1815. There's been somewhat just under 90 and before 1800, states that started wars won 75% of the time. Now, since 1945, states that start wars win 33% of the time. So if states start wars intending to win, the crucial assumption, that means they're screwing up in their calculations a lot more than they used to. So what what's become complex about the battlefield, political judgments, the stakes at hand, um, that's remained t- to be determined. But... The fact itself is really fascinating. Thirty-three percent of initiators win. And that's just devastating.
0: Is it always easy to determine exactly who initiated?
1: That is another great question. It's very difficult to tell. And it depends on the coding rules for each database. I use two different databases and three different coding rules. And of the number of wars, they disagree from 16 to 22 cases. And that's out of only 90 or so. so. it really depends so for example this is a fun little tidbit one of the databases has Poland starting World War two and why is that true because they code it as whoever fired the first shot but that's an erroneous indicator sometimes maybe a better movement or indicators how many troops moved in force in which case obviously Hitler and Germany started World War two which I, I bet we kind of knew that uh, before we heard about Poland starting the war but but there it is so it's a, a large end thing and they Depending on their coding rules, they have to follow the same coding rule for each war. They can generate erroneous or conflicting conclusions. So that's why your question is so great. It's actually very complex to figure out who started a war.
0: A lot of nuances there. Um, Okay, so tell us, how's the research coming along? And the million-dollar question for you is, does the development of new weapons technology contribute to states' decisions to go to war?
1: Well, to me it's a fun question, in part because of the context we live in. Everybody's thinking drones and predators and what effect do they have on our decisions to go to war? Does it make it easier to go to war? Because it's cheaper, we don't put our pilots in harm's way, etc. So that's why the question is a live one. And the answer, just to cut to the chase, is that weapons really don't contribute that much to the decision to go to war. But they do help hawks influence doves, that the war will be cheaper and easier, and so there's an effect. Not necessarily the major effect, because there's always some geopolitical tension, uh, but there is an effect on the margins about the decision to go to war.
0: Okay, and for those who might not understand your reference there, let's talk about hawks and doves. You mean okay. by that?
1: Hawks are proponents of war. Doves generally try and seek peaceful solutions, negotiations, etc.
0: Who so, falls, in your perception right now, of where does everyone fall? The major players in, in global, um, global power right now. Where where does everybody fall in those columns?
1: Well, you can see quite a flare-up of hawkishness in the last day or two coming out of the Trump administration talking about Korea and what the options are. This talk about fire and fury, a very, pretty explicit reference to using nuclear weapons, uh, is a rather new development. And it's interesting that there you see Trump and Secretary of Defense Mattis talking in very forceful terms, and Tillerson. Secretary of State talking about, well, we still have our negotiating options are open, Uh, let's look for other solutions. So you have kind of a good cop, bad cop situation developing, and so the hawk would be the bad cop and the good cop would be the dove, but that doesn't necessarily equate because you need both the hawks and the doves, the carrots and the sticks, to have an effective foreign policy. The trick with Trump is he came out with that statement just off the cuff. you know, The remarks in front of him were about the opioid crisis, and what he said was, fire and fury, we're going to rain heck upon North Korea. And so where that came from and how it was followed up on uh, is a matter to be determined. So I'm not sure if that's deliberate hawk and dovishness, or that's just the way the administration's working out. But it's not necessarily a wrong thing to have a hawk and a dove go simultaneously and, and do try and create the good cop, bad cop effect, I think that overall it can lead to better results than one way or the other.
0: Sure. While you bring this up, the whole North Korea issue right now, it actually does tie in um, so closely with, with your weapons research. It seems to me that a lot of this is weapons showmanship. So what's your perception about what's going on right now between um, the, the, two, the two contentious powers?
1: Well, I think North Korea is in the business of showmanship. Um, Because they're trying to demonstrate new capabilities for them from a just blanket term we can annihilate North Korea with our nuclear weapons, so it's not really new weapons for us. It's we can destroy them. We can utterly turn them into glass and That's not an issue. So it's not really the weapons that are issue. It's the overall tremendous effect that has been around for decades now the US could annihilate a small country like that
0: (laughs) It could possibly be for his internal PR, because um, how, how uh, well-informed the, the North Korean people are to that fact is questionable. We just don't know. Do we?
1: No, um, no. And that actually is a, yet another $64 million great question, because to me, yes, development of new weapons can affect things, but the real source of miscalculation for North Korea is what do the leaders actually know? Are the generals willing to tell them that the U.S. has overwhelming superiority? They're gonna lose, and quickly, any war that starts, and they're gonna risk death to themselves. Or do they say, dear great leader, uh, a wonderful godlike presence, uh, we're invulnerable, and feel free to have a reckless foreign policy in the face of a threat that we can defeat. I don't know what's, who's being told the truth and what kind of miscalculations they're capable of if they don't know the truth in the first place. So it's more of a decision-making leadership quagmire than it is a weapons thing. Um.
0: right, right, okay. All right, so let's circle back um, to technology and the weapons question. So um, it it is evident uh, the astronomical rate, technology is advancing. Many of the advantages our military has had for decades will be overcome, and possibly the edge that these new technologies provide will be increasingly short-lived. So a few years ago, Air Force Chief of Staff, General Walsh, said um, that this fact creates both opportunities and challenges for the U.S., but I can't help wondering if that mostly seems like bad news for the U.S. So exactly what would these opportunities be?
1: Well, um, if we can take advantage of newer technologies faster and better than other countries, Um, We'd have a distinct advantage and in fact our R&D budget alone is larger than most countries defense budgets So we have a lot of resources being put into this on the other hand We don't know how fast other people are necessarily developing technologies or what they're developing This is all in a realm that's fairly secret so people can have offsetting technologies for example the Chinese are rumored to be developing an ICBM that could take out our aircraft carriers that would be a devastating threat to our sea presence Now, can they do this? Can we develop offsetting technologies to take out those ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles? Um, So it's a technological race. And if if we're in a crisis and they're thinking to themselves, oh, we've got this new missile, this could do it for the carriers, then that could be a cause of their calculation, which would be a miscalculation if we actually had decent countermeasures and they went to war thinking they would win, and in fact, they didn't and couldn't. Because their technology wasn't what they thought it was and likewise that could happen to us we could have some form of space weapon or cyber weapon who knows what the calculation would be on how fast these things are developing because it really is an ever-increasing domain of new weapon new weapon enhancement and what's a game-changer and what's not you know we don't know what we're doing with cyber really we have tremendous capabilities but nobody really knows how to define when a war is started how much damage has been done how do you respond? How have we responded that people haven't told people about? I, well, I can't you th- tell you.
0: Do you think the U.S. has a pretty high confidence level? I mean, last week we spoke with Eugene Galtz, and uh, he reminded us that this the globalization of technolog- techn- technological advances is when it comes to military weapons is much slower than consumer products, etc. So, um, yes, while we have one side... Um, has a development, and then there's often the other side is a counter. Does the U.S. have, do you think has a pretty high confidence level that we're pretty much on the forefront and we'll always be maybe one step ahead?
1: I don't think we can safely say we'll always be ahead because Chinese are incredibly great engineers. They're entering the aerospace uh, business in force. Um, So I don't know how things are going to end up. I think anybody who tries to predict it would end up being wrong. And we also don't get huge bang for our buck in r&d because we are pushing the cutting edge and the cutting edge is always that extra five percent costs a hundred percent more so what do you actually get when you're putting that much money into r&d you get the best coolest stuff but is it really that great and for example our new fighter the f-35 um people claim it's going to be great but it's far from it yet and it's developed a number of problems along the way from broken parts to systems that don't work That they're rely on very limited amounts of ammunition and bombs it can carry, so its overall effectiveness is questionable. we've put a lot of money into it. It's probably the most expensive weapon system we've ever produced. And so are we getting our bang for the buck? I don't know, but the next fighter that we develop will benefit from what we did for the F-35. So you tell me.
0: Okay, well I'll ask you what we've asked, you know, all of the um, faculty members from the, the center here. You know, in your mind, what are the threats that are off the radar? What are the threats people aren't paying attention to that they should?
1: Right. If this was a week or two ago, I would have said nuclear weapons. And I always try and teach my students about nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction. But now, obviously, nuclear weapons are back on everybody's radar. The thing to me, which most people don't focus on, is biofabrication. And by that, I mean the ability to produce biological weapons in a very small laboratory facilities such as a university. Um, We could easily produce biological weapons here if you wanted to do it. And that technology is going to be cheaper and easier as time goes by. So all you have to do is program in smallpox, and out will come smallpox at the end of the device. And boom, you have something that allegedly now only the US and the Russians have um, for defensive purposes. But if you were to just produce it, and uh, you could put it in the water supply, bring it to an airport, something communicable. Um, And bioweapons are really scary because, let's say, one of us in the room was infectious, and then you're going on vacation to Florida and you're going to France. Uh, Boom. You now have communicable spreading throughout the world. And when the U.S. government has tried to simulate a bioweapons attack, they shut down the attack after two simulated weeks because it had gone global and there was nothing to be done.
0: So is there any way to really prevent this type of thing? I mean, this is what you teach. This is what we have um, scads of people working on every day in the military as security threats. But how do we really, realistically, prevent this sort of thing from happening?
1: It's going to be extremely hard because, like I said, any university of any note will be able to produce bioweapons. People in their basement would be able to produce bioweapons. So the rich and the evil have that capability. Why wouldn't they do it? Perhaps some level of self-deterrence, as happened with chemical weapons over time, because the danger of self-infection would be huge. You know, what if you could develop a bioweapon that was, would only attack blonde people, for example? That would be kind of not very happy. Um, so you don't want that to happen, and it's, it's just a big terrible threat that's going to get worse over time. And you know, What kind of security state would you have to have? to actually limit that threat? What kind of invasive technologies and policing tools would you need to stop that? And I don't see how that's going to happen. And you know, similarly, there's a scientist who came to Notre Dame a few years ago, and he said, back in the days when we developed the atomic bomb, those were all on the Manhattan Project. That was the, the team that was doing it. Those were all Nobel Laureate quality scientists. And now he said, I would fire any graduate student who couldn't make a nuclear bomb. So what does that tell you about the way technology is going to increasingly evolve and how you control that kind of technology. And nuclear stuff is actually fairly easy to control compared to bioweapons because nuclear stuff, if you have uranium-235 or plutonium, then you can make a bomb. And that, from that point on, it's fairly easy. But if you can control the substance itself, then you can keep a lid on nuclear threats. But you cannot keep a similar lid on bio threats just because the similarity of a lab that's producing you know polio vaccines or something is gonna look a lot like a bioweapons lab. And you can change it over, you know, overnight essentially.
0: Right. It's 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 this this different threat similar to um, not physical destruction, um, weapons of, of physical destruction, but it's almost along the lines of um, cyber warfare and cyber threat. Um, the, the, bio, the biofabrication, I'm not sure we have, even if the smartest people in the world are working on that, if it's even possible to reduce the threat to almost nil. What about cybersecurity? Cyber
1: huh. Well, that apparently is very hard to control as well. And I think the analogy you're making between the two is very apt because definitely, you know, cyber has this viral way of spreading and so, of course, do communicable diseases. So, very hard to stop. Um, If you want to look at it in kind of a technological wonky way, you can say that the offense has the advantage over the defense in both these domains. So you can more easily hurt someone than you can protect someone in either domain. And again, it's something of an arms race. You know, there's virus updates all the time to your computer software and they're trying to catch up with something that just came out of Slovenia and um, you know how do you end up winning that race? It's more responsive than proactive, and I think that's going to be true as well. It's just you know, one thing to look at that's positive is that one could achieve a lot with bioweapons, and one hasn't seen many attacks with bioweapons. So maybe something else is going on. Maybe there's norms against it. I don't particularly buy that. I think there's a sort of technological determination that these will be developed over time. Even though there's a Biological Weapons Convention that outlaws it, but you know, here's something. You know, some of us who were kind of in the lefty arms control community during the Cold War scoffed when Ronald Reagan said that the Soviets were the evil empire. Oh, nobody's that evil. It's you know, sort of moral equivalence and all that. In point of fact, they had over sixty thousand people working on biological weapons after having signed the Biological Weapons Convention, and that makes them more evil than Ronald Reagan even knew at the time. So, you know, what kind of regime do you have to have to restart that kind of effort, which is against the law that they've signed themselves? It's it's just terrible. So
0: even in this short conversation we're having today, I mean, this is um, such a broad subject, international security, it makes me wonder, how do you approach the education of this? Um, you've begun this, this new center at the University of Notre Dame, and, um, you know, you have students after, very interested in in these programs how do you even scratch the surface um, I, you know in, in these episodes of this podcast we're really scratching the surface on a number of very broad subjects so you know how do you do this with the students what are the, what are the goals what you know and how do you measure success how do you know how to tailor these programs
1: right that's a multi level question and uh quite complex there's I think, two different ways of looking at the teaching aspect. One is what's one's philosophy of teaching. And my philosophy of teaching is to teach argument and counterargument. Because in the end, no matter what the student does with their life, argument, counterargument is the best way to at least try and discern the truth. Or if not discern the truth, to try and figure out who's telling you lies. And so that's the the overall skill that I want to teach is argument, counterargument. When it comes to substantive issues, um, I spend a lot of my time talking about national security issues. It's my strength. Um, It also tends to dominate the news. So this last semester, I think I lost three weeks out of my syllabus, something like that, and a lot of topics weren't covered because A, we talked about current events, and B, we talked about weapons of mass destruction of various sorts. And, you know, so it's substantive as well as just a general philosophy. And with regard to national security here at the center, um, we're inaugurating our undergraduate fellows program this year. And that's very exciting. So we have about 15 undergraduate fellows in our inaugural class. And we're going to provide them with a gateway course on national security policy, uh, supervise their theses, which will be geared towards some security topic of mutual choice. Um, We're going to provide them internship support and mentoring, and just generally try and get them moving towards a career in international security. And and all of us in the center have long experience uh, advising students who go on in some way into the security apparatus. Department of State, etc. We do lots of security clearance interviews and so forth. And uh, it's quite happy to see the growth of our students over time. And this um, new initiative, the Undergraduate Fellows, is going to be I think a major boost um, in that direction. So we'll be able to provide even some financial support for internships because a lot of people are bound by the need to work in the summer for money so that they can afford to come here this will liberate them to be able to follow their dreams. It's really you know in our parlance it's an arms race in terms of who gets internships and the more the better and we want our students to have uh, every advantage when it comes to a future career.
0: Well you mentioned a few directions but what is your hope that these students will be able to go on and, and do um, proficiently with, you know, exceptional skills. What, where, where are they needed and, and what what will they be able to contribute?
1: Um, they're needed almost everywhere in the policy world, in the academic world. Um, we want to have the best and the brightest focusing on questions that are important because they could kill or save millions, maybe billions of people, um, you know, more power to the people who go to med school. There's so many ways of contributing in the world, but our forte, the things that we do, are focused on national security broadly defined. So it could be Department of State, it could be foreign aid, it could be negotiating crises, it could be having historical knowledge to know what's good and bad in a crisis, this balance between carrots and sticks that I talked about, how has that worked in the past, what happens if you just go to one side or the other, how do you manage arguments between hawks and doves in your administration? Do you welcome arguments in your administration or not? And the same would go for lower-level uh, bureaucrats as well. How do you manage people? And that's critical.
0: So this, this education track and these these careers that um, you know, we're discussing, tell me your philosophy on how—and and the realistic um, opinion you have on this—of the balance between the military experts and, and those with— you know, experience on the ground with the scholarly experts, and and how how is the, are they working well enough together? Or does is there any sort of um, maybe rift between the 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 perception of each other's uh, knowledge? Um, they they've got a there's got to be a balance somehow, and it seems like we are we're not a military academy here at Notre Dame, um, so we're not we're not having that side to it? How do you think they should work together and where do you think that realistically is right
1: now? Um, A bunch of great questions there, but I'll start with a small correction. We actually are something of a military academy in that we have one of the largest ROTC programs in the country, and we make conscious efforts to integrate with them, to talk with them. The Kroc Institute has faculty fellows that have lunch with the top officers there. Um, We have something, we have the small unit uh, leadership exercise, which we do in the spring with the ROTC cadets. Um, We typically have numbers of ROTC uh, students in our classes um, just because of the mutual attraction there. So I think there's a lot of benefit to people mixing it up and to not having an ivory tower be a wall between service and the state and academics off in some sort of la-la land. And I would say, you know, I think a unifying philosophy that we have here at NDISC is a philosophy of pragmatism and not flying a flag of one side or another, or all hawks, all doves. It's kind of what works best philosophy. And I think that's, again, where my argument, counterargument philosophy comes in, is that's what I'm really driving at, is what works. Because I don't really care what your belief is, Democrat, Republican, et cetera. I want to know what works for a particular thing. That doesn't mean that I know what works, but it means I strive to have an analytical view about what the answer might be. So it's a really, it's a tough, tough question, and there have been images of a divide between, say, the press and the military, especially during Vietnam, that that rose a bit. But there was a guy named Richard Betts who wrote a pretty cool book on soldiers, statesmen, and Cold War crises, and he argued that it was actually civilian advisors that were more hawkish, the word keeps coming up, more hawkish than the military advisors um, in a small majority of cases. So that's not what most people would think. Most people would think you wear the you know the badges and the mm-hmm. uniform, and you're going to be more hawkish, but it's not really true. And I think as soldiers rise up in the ranks, they tend to have a longer view, and a, a view that views war as costly, and uh, one in which you don't want to be spending your troops um, unwisely, because you have people's blood on your hands.
0: There's a very big difference between living the experience firsthand or just reading um, the summaries, and, and, and even if you study in depth, I mean, that's just the reality of life, yeah. so it's, a, it's an interesting perspective.
1: Now, I'm gonna be a hypocrite here, and I haven't served in the military, but I think it is somewhat of a hazard that an increasing proportion of our civilian leadership has not served in the military. And I look in particular to the case of JFK, John F. Kennedy, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, who I think handled it heroically, And also with the knowledge of somebody who had been in the military who knew a standard operating procedure who didn't necessarily blame the other guy's leadership for having shot down one of our planes but knew that it could have been just lower level people executing their orders and so he had an understanding that i think led him to manage the crisis in a much more adept way um, than somebody who didn't have military experience Um, so i think i wish more people went into the military and i actually wish that we had a national service program for all of our youth yeah so you know that's not really on the table so the heck with all my points about what's practical uh but i think it would be good to integrate our country i think you know between the rich and the poor the racial divides that persist um i just think a lot of good would be had by mixing up everybody for a year or two and having them serve the common good you know just get a sense of the common good what is the common good do people share a sense of the common good as much as they might and Probably should, so I think we're sort of f- falling apart in some ways as a country. And I don't think that's a good thing.
0: Well, it can. It could serve as a great equalizer. I mean, I see your point there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, speaking of contributions and and working toward better understanding, um, so the, the research project that you're uh, you know immersed in right now on um, this examination of new weapons and and how it um, can trigger states into war. What do, you hope, what do you hope is the result of this research? When you do come up with some of these answers, how do you think it will be beneficial?
1: Well, precisely, you know, sort of political science, in my view, works the same way as psychology does. If you can be aware of a problem, then you can address the problem. And I think if people are aware that hawks can use new weapons to make arguments, they'll say, hey, where's the catch? You know, where's the asterisk? Let's not go so fast. Or they'll think, oh, this is great. But it will at least allow them to have that debate, right? Argument, counterargument of what is actually going on when I'm being told that the war is going to be cheaper, faster, et cetera. And when we bombed Kosovo, they said with our new precision-guided munitions it's going to be over in three days, and it took 70-some-odd days to, to end. It was the promise of the new weapon that made them able to say, over in three days, very few civilian casualties, et cetera, and it turned out to be incorrect. So had you been aware of this phenomena and hearing these arguments, you might have said, what's the catch? Are you
0: sure about that? Are you really sure yeah. about those three days? Um, yeah, we, we have a history of, of, of wars dragging on longer than they're ever promised to. Um, yeah. You know, actually.
1: It's also possible take- the definition of wars has changed a bit so afghanistan and iraq being some of our longest conflicts winning seems to be rebuilding the entire country not just knocking off the leadership and uh, leaving so i wonder what the lesson will be in future conflicts knock off the leadership and leave or assassinate um, otherwise turn bombing but you know is that going to be the new way of war because the painful lessons we've learned by having defined victory as occupation for a very long time. Of course, it worked very well for Germany and Japan, so who knows what the, the actual lessons are there.
0: Well, before we wind this conversation down, I'd love to hear about your summer and anything that has particularly excited you in any studies or current events or anything, or maybe not even excited, but piqued your interest um, or concerned you. What's, what's on your mind?
1: Well, Korea, of course, is leaping not just to the headlines, but it's been a hot issue for a long time. And it's a train that's on a collision course, is it, You know, two trains. And they build weapons that can threaten us. And our assessment is that they are an irrational country. Um, then we're in a real rock and a hard place. Um, the question is, how irrational might they be? And that's a key part of the debate that academics have and policymakers is, is North Korea irrational? And you could have thought, well, Russia, boy, Freaking commies! They got nuclear weapons right after, you know, World War II, and it's starting a Cold War. And they're irrational. They want to take over the world. And you know, every other sentence out of them was propaganda about them defeating the West. And then they have nuclear weapons, but we somehow made it through that. Um, could the same be true of North Korea? Um, on the other hand, I have more faith that the advisors to the communist leaders were had a better perspective, a fuller perspective than that in. North Korea, which if you know you happen to sneeze when the great leader's looking at you, you will end up being killed with an artillery shell into your belly, and that's not a very happy civil-military civil relationship there.
0: Well, now the sanctions against North Korea seem to have some teeth if they are, um, you know, carried out. How do you? It puts China in an interesting position there. So, what are your thoughts on that? Um, uh,
1: China so far has not been willing to push as hard as we would like to have them stop their missile and nuclear weapons programs. Um, and this is another thing, sort of teaching philosophy thing. I always try and teach, get into other people's shoes and think, what is life like from their perspective? So I go around the globe and say, this is this country. What's, what's life like if you're Chinese? And the life for the Chinese with respect to Korea is potential for huge numbers of refugees, potential for if they're reunified under Southern leadership, That brings the U.S. military to the Chinese border. Um, So there's a host of bad outcomes for them, and nuclear weapons weighed in perspective appears not to be as important as just keeping the peace at whatever cost. Now the question is, are we ramping our threats up enough for them to begin to take us seriously? And Because really, in the end, a nuclear war anywhere in Asia is no good for China at all. And uh, so maybe they'll, you know, maybe Trump's threats will be effective and wake them up and maybe they'll have some leverage. The question is, do they have enough leverage? Now think about things from the Korean perspective, North Korea's perspective. Regime survival, number one priority. Un's life, number one priority. So what's, they're going to give up their nuclear weapons? Right? It's the greatest insurance card they could ever have. So mm-hmm. heck with the sanctions keep full speed ahead on the weapons program because what happens if, you're, if you don't have nuclear weapons? You turn into Iraq and the U.S. comes in. So of the three countries in the axis of evil, North Korea, Iraq, and Iran, which one did we go after? The one without nukes and that had a third of the population of the other one that doesn't have nukes. We did not go after Korea. We went after the lowest hanging fruit. So how does Korea aim to ensure its survival? Nuclear weapons. So if it's equivalent to its major national mission, a billion dollars lost in trade, rather pales in comparison, especially if you're a regime that doesn't care about your people. Have you ever seen the pictures of North Korea at night versus South Korea? South Korea is bustling and lots of lights everywhere. And North Korea is one of the darkest places on the planet. They just don't have the electricity. Right. It's crazy and sad. And their people are malnourished, etc. It's not happy being a North Korean these days.
0: You you bring up a um, sort of a, a a long known fact that there's it's it's all about perspective and that you think it's important to teach students to um, put yourself in the other side's shoes and um, you know, when I was a student and I was studying abroad in in London one of our professors was shocked when we were discussing various global events and. He, I remember being really um, sort of taken off guard when he said, you have no idea, you know, us as American students um, as with Ronald Reagan as, preg- as president, how afraid the rest of the world was of the United States. Um, he says, you know, you all think we're all afraid of Russia? We're not. We're afraid of the Americans. And, of course, we were young, you know, 19, 20-year-old students, and it really took us aback. And um, I, I think it's... It is an important part of your education. How do you incorporate that global experience um, with the students here?
1: Um, by teaching exactly what I just told you, is to try and get into other people's shoes. So we review um, a scholar named Bob Jervis, wrote an article about misperceptions and one of them is it's hard to get into other people's shoes. So I call it the bowling shoe analogy because you, what's the mm-hmm. shoe in the world you'd least like to wear? A bowling shoe, right? So. Um, so I teach students the bowling shoe, and I call it the bowling shoe, and it was actually Jervis approved my idea for calling it that, so so harumph. <laughs> but are there um, but, any
0: international but, study programs for you well, know, that particularly a lot of highlight students. this area?
1: We send more students abroad than almost any university that you could name. There are some that have a higher rate, but you probably couldn't name them. I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but compared to our peers and our aspirational peers, we do a great job sending students abroad. Now, whether or not that translates into actual awareness of what it is to be abroad and to know somebody. You know, you go to the London program, you're going to live with Notre Dame students. So you're effectively changing the accent of your bartender. Um, that is not optimal. And I've heard some things about other programs. You know, London is an academically good program, but in terms of cultural awareness, it would be better if they lived with families. So I always recommend to my students to go to a program like Toledo, uh, where you do live with families or in foreign dorms or whatever. And that gets you so much more immersed. Because just like the experience here, it's you get some time with your professors, but it's who you're hanging out with. that's a huge percent of your education.
0: Right, right. So. Well, our conversation today has been with Professor Dan Lindley. He's the author of Promoting Peace with Information and the Associate Director of Notre Dame's International Security Program. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of
1: the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.